Welcome back to the Movie Babble Podcast. This week you have myself, Colin, and I'm joined by Brennan. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, happy to be on. Yeah, we had a uh, a pretty tight weekend at the box office. Like this is these are small margins. Yeah, certainly. It looks like a kind of. Uh, I mean, this kind of came because of uh, because of uh, a little bit of an underperformance from In the Heights, but it was kind of a four way performance or four way race here at the box office for sure. Yeah, and I mean it's it's nice because we've had movies coming back for a while. Uh, you know, we're we're probably on like month two or so of at least regular releases, um, not really regular numbers um, until uh, A Quiet Place Two hitting that hundred mil club. Um, but this was the first week that really felt like there's been some heavy competition because uh, we got a little bit of it last week with Cruella, A Quiet Place, and The Conjuring. Uh, but now we're throwing. Two more movies into the mix. Um, there, there are a couple of others that aren't quite pulling those numbers. Uh, but yeah, we have competition is back. Um, so we had uh, the rundown for this week. Um, man, this is like the first box office rundown I've done in like a year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the number one spot, we have A Quiet Place 2, uh, which actually moved up from the number two spot last week um, with 11.65 million, followed by In the Heights. Um, debuting at 11.405 million, Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway at 10.4 million, uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It at 10.02 million, and Cruella at number five with 6.74 million. Um, so obviously, kind of like you said, the top four is pretty competitive. Um, and I think it's a little bit skewed because In the Heights was also a hybrid release with HBO Max. Um, and we don't don't have numbers for that. Um, so this probably isn't the most accurate result we're getting, but it's nice to see things actually fighting for the number one spot again. Yeah, I think there's got to be a conversation here about expectations. And in the Heights, uh, so it comes out day and date, HBO Max and theaters. And I saw a lot of people on Twitter watching on HBO Max personally, just from kind of uh, seeing reactions to it and, people where they had seen it also this movie had been screening for like critics and special screenings for like the last three months so i i put out a tweet actually last week and i said is anyone even going to be able to see this movie next weekend like that hasn't already because i just felt like for months now i've been seeing people give thoughts and reactions to a movie that hadn't been out yet and i don't know if that is a huge factor here in kind of some underperforming numbers for this movie but it did underperform at the box office, but that's why I do want to talk about expectations. So, I mean, 11.4 million, no official estimate came out, but a lot of people were expecting 20 to 25, maybe even 25 to 30 at the best case. So it, it, it's pretty low. Warner was not really wanting to give an expectation because they didn't want to, you know, set themselves up for anything. But I think a lot of people were thinking high teens, but 11.4 is not a solid start for this movie. But the, the reason expectations, that's, that, that's the reason I bring that up is because if something's coming out on streaming the day of, how much does the box office really matter anymore in your opinion? Is it something that is just a bonus or is it just like, like how do you look at it? I mean with a movie like Army of the Dead that had like a one week special box office run and it made I think 700K in its first weekend, I looked at that and I said, wow, Netflix made an extra 700K. I look at this and I don't say, wow, Warner made an extra 11 million. I say, wow, uh, In the Heights did bad. 
So I think we do have to have a conversation about expectations. Yeah, I think it's kind of touching first on that point you're making about this having been out for a while. Um, I mean, even even myself without like credentials and private screenings, um, that kind of stuff, like there was a free showing on Mother's Day. Um, so this movie's definitely had some time to get um, word of mouth out and just kind of get around. And I feel like, yeah, a lot of the first weekend people um, that would have seen it this weekend have already seen it. So I think that's definitely in play. Um, and I also think, yeah, I think this movie is not necessarily like the kind of spectacle like Godzilla versus Kong or like, um, you know, e even something like uh, The Conjuring last week that it was also on HBO Max. Um, it's not something that I really think has that, oh, you need to see this in theaters feel, um, especially because this movie is so tied into just the Lin-Manuel Miranda vibe. Um, and Hamilton was kind of the same way, just went straight to Disney Plus, had a lot of success there. So I would imagine um, the streaming numbers are a lot higher for this because this isn't just a, oh, you need to get get to the theater and see this kind of thing. Uh, but I also think this is a movie that's going to benefit from just wider word of mouth. Um, so I think we'll see it continue to perform a little bit better than um, some of these other movies that are a little bit more front loaded. Yeah, I mean... I think musical, musicals are kind of a different beast overall, right? I think you look back and The Greatest Showman is what people always turn to, uh, opened up to 8.8 .8 and then domestically opened up to 8.8 .8 and was considered a flop. And then it went on to make $174 million, pulling off something that really, on that scale, only Titanic has really done, right? Like a first weekend being 5% of your total. That's just not ever seen. Now, I don't think this is going to do those types of numbers, but I do think you're right. It's going to have better legs than probably something like Mortal Kombat, which was at HBO Max day and date. 50% of its earnings have been first weekend for that film. So it's probably going to do better than something like that. It's probably going to have decent legs. I think this is a movie that, I mean, I think it's a movie that you, you want to see in theaters. Um, here in Canada, we don't have HBO Max, so I did a rental for it. Uh, but I would, when theaters hopefully open in July, I would go check this out on a matinee day or something like that because I, I, I did enjoy it. Um, it. It's a fun movie for sure. I didn't love it. I think there were a few issues here and there, but uh, I did enjoy it. And I do think it would be a fun time in the theaters. But yeah, it's just, it's it's a lot of variables. It's certainly a lot of variables. And we're seeing with this day and date thing, uh, the, the IP or franchise films seem to be doing better. And that makes sense. That does make sense. But it's certainly interesting, and I just wonder how much longer they're going to keep it like this. I know the the COVID recovery hasn't quite fully kicked in. I think it's going to be a while before things are fully back to normal um, in terms of box office, but it is it is an interesting conversation. Yeah, um, and I think this will be a little bit more of an anomaly compared to some of the bigger stuff. Um, kind of like you said, I think I think existing IP just has more of a draw because people are already kind of aware of what they're getting. Um, but I, I don't think In the Heights is just completely dead because I think its streaming numbers were probably um, competing with its its theatrical numbers, and I think it is going to have pretty good legs throughout the summer. Yeah, I'd agree. I, certainly. It, it will be interesting. I mean, it's tough because this weekend just – I think a lot of people that were so hyped for this movie were pretty let down when these numbers came out all over Twitter and all just all over the online space. But you kind of got to let it breathe. I think you got to just let it go. I mean, next weekend is not really a competitive weekend. We have the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which comes out on a Wednesday. 
So really, the weekend's really in play for anyone, right? It's going to be a, I think it's going to be a, a quiet weekend, kind of leading into that F nine June twenty five weekend, which is after next weekend. Uh, so yeah, I think we'll we'll see next weekend, kind of letting these movies play a little bit more in a less uh, busy box office up until F nine comes in. But yeah, what do you think of In the Heights? Uh, you checked it out. What was your thought? Um, so I was one of those people that saw it at home. Um, I'd had plans to go see it with my uh, AMC stubs, uh, just plugged out there. Um, but it kind of got to the day of, and I was like, man, that's like a 30-minute commute each way. I don't know if I really want to add that onto my day. So I just watched it at home. Um, it was still it was still an enjoyable watch. Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't feeling all of the buzz um, to this movie that I feel like a lot of the early viewers were. Uh, and I, I think I was kind of... Uh, we talked about this with Jonathan uh, during the the auction, um, but I just I didn't really feel just completely sucked into it. Um, I liked it, I enjoyed it. It was a fine time, um, but I didn't really think there was anything just crazily unique or you know crazily special. Uh, you know, with with a lot of musicals, there's just almost kind of a magical element to it. Uh, you know, and I just didn't really feel that. Yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. I did watch it twice because if, if I'm going to be paying a little bit of a premier rental price, I want to get <laughs> the most out of it. So I did watch it twice and I thought the music was good. I didn't love all the musical numbers and I don't know if they'll all be super memorable personally, but I did like some of them. I liked all the kind of big cast numbers. I'm not a huge fan of the talking singing approach in a musical. Uh, I, I think it's just a little bit of a detractor. I like when there's, you know, you talk, you have a scene of talking then you go into your music instead of the talkie singing that we see in this movie. So that was something, that was a stylistic choice that I didn't love. I also, um, maybe it's John M. Chu's directing, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I was a fan of Crazy Rich Asians. I absolutely bought the hype there. I thought that was a super fun uh, rom-com. But I wish this movie felt a little bit more grounded, if you know what I mean. I just feel like... Um, th there could have been There could have been more there just in terms of a... Um, just a grounded element. I think that it just seemed too maybe because I mean musicals are fantastical, but it just seemed to maybe a little bit too maybe phony is not the word, but if you know what I mean, kind of in that vein. Uh, but I did really mm -hmm. enjoy it. Put a smile on my face certainly throughout it, and I thought all the performances were really good. And it it, it also it also was able to pull your heartstrings in the right moments. I think there's a great scene and song near the middle of the movie with. Uh, the uh, grandma, the abuela in the film uh, that I think, I mean, the movie does show there that it's got some good emotional, uh, emotional punch there. The runtime's also been a topic of discussion, two hours and 20 minutes. I didn't have a problem with it personally. Uh, not sure if you felt it at all, but for me, I didn't really feel it. I felt it was fine, especially because you're balancing such an ensemble um, that, I, that I feel like it never feels like, oh my goodness, what is this going to end? Um, I think it it's zippy enough. Um, it keeps going forward um, and keeps just moving you from each of these different stories that are, you know, quasi connected well enough that I didn't think it was too daunting. Yeah, no, for sure. I'd agree. I didn't, I didn't feel the runtime either with Corella. That was kind of a, a big debate as well. Both those movies. I mean, I don't love both of these films. I think they're both good movies. I really enjoy them. Uh, but yeah, I don't think the runtime has been a big issue with uh, the last couple kind of runtime focused uh debates we've seen yeah and i think it has just a really stellar cast i mean so you have 
Anthony Ramos, who's uh, probably most famous um, for being in Hamilton, uh, is the main character Usnavi, who was played by Lin Manuel Miranda um, in the original production. Um, and then you have uh, Corey Hawkins, who I feel like is really kind of coming up in the acting world. Um, you know, he first kind of became famous with um, Straight Outta Compton six years ago. Um, and then he's done like Kong Skull Island and he was in uh, Black Klansman, uh, Six Underground and now In the Heights. Um, he's got the tragedy of Macbeth coming up later this year. Um, so you, you've got those two. You've got Jimmy Smits, who I really enjoyed in this movie. Oh, he's great. I think he's a scene stealer personally. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I can't look at him and not see Bail Organa from the prequels, but um <laughs> He was just tremendous. Uh, I watched Dexter, so he's he he was a, a big part of season three of Dexter, so that's kind of what I see with him. Gotcha. Yeah, he's he's always gonna be Princess Leia's dad to me. Um, but yeah, and then ju- just the entirety of the cast. You've got um, Leslie Grace is is Nina, and Melissa Barrera is Vanessa. Um, and I also want to just call out Stephanie Beatriz, uh, who's probably most famous for uh, being kind of the like hard-nosed character in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I really like that all of her movie roles have been just the complete opposite of that. Uh, <laughs> she was she was the villain in the Lego Movie 2, uh, or quasi-villain in the Lego Movie 2. Um, she's been in this. Um, she's in uh, Disney's Encanto coming up later this year. Um, she's just like such a different personality. I really like um, just her efforts to not be typecast. Um, she's done a really good job with it. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the cast was really, really solid here. Yeah, so that is In the Heights. And we'll move on to another big streaming release. Um, so this was Loki, the third Disney Marvel series. We went from having no Marvel series to having three in the span of six months. Uh, just <laughs> talk about the machine. Keep keeping on. Um, yeah, is it six months? Was that six months since? Uh, I'm thinking even shorter than that. Yeah, because WandaVision was like maybe end of January, early February. So yeah, probably like five okay, months. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, they just keep cranking out stuff, and uh, the Loki, the Loki pilot. I don't want to play my hand too much, but I think the Loki pilot has been the best pilot of the MCU uh, series so far. Uh, what what were your kind of overall thoughts on it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, so I haven't been, I haven't kind of, I haven't been kind of sold on the Marvel shows up and up until this point. Like I'm not just, I'm not super interested in them. I watch WandaVision. I haven't watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier yet. Something I'll probably do throughout the summer. Um, but I did want to, because it's only six episodes, I did want to go weekly here with Loki. So I did jump in and watch the pilot. I thought it was really good. Um, a lot of people are really praising it for sure, just like you. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I think it's it's got a really good vibe there, and I think it's going to kind of set itself up to be a very interesting show. I don't know if we get into spoilers here talking about the Marvel stuff. I haven't actually been on when you guys chatted about them, uh, you and Nick, but uh, the ending there kind of sets you up for, I think, what's going to be a very interesting six episodes. Um, I don't know if you agree here, but I know a lot of the show was very nostalgic to... Uh, the MCU, a lot of throwback kind of flashbacks, and obviously the episode, the way it plays out, he's kind of forced to, to look back on himself and past moments, so we obviously look back at old MCU films. I found those elements to be the weaker parts of the episode, not that they were bad, but just I like seeing everything else uh, being built up. 
I think that those elements, I wouldn't say they took me out of the show at all, but they, um, they were good for the emotional impact, but I think the rest of the show, the rest of the episode is much stronger. Yeah. And it's weird to me how like Thor, the dark world has weirdly become the center of the MCU. Um, so we saw this with, um, end game a couple years ago where that was like, you know, Thor's big, um, emotional beat in the movie is, is reframing Thor, the dark world. And then we kind of saw that again. Um, in this show. So I think it's just kind of funny how that keeps coming up and they're like, yeah, this is actually, <laughs> you thought like the winter the, soldier, the worst Civil film, <laughs> the worst film in, Thor, in, in the franchise potentially is the uh, most important. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think like some of the ways they try to reframe Thor, the dark world, I was like, okay, that's, that's not really what happened in the movie, but, uh, keep telling yourself that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really liked it. I think this uh, and I will get into spoilers a little bit, um, but I think that Loki feels the most kind of locked in on thematically what it wants to be. Um, with WandaVision, the first episode was really just kind of a fun, here's what our, here's the feel of our show. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I personally don't think the Falcon and the Winter Soldier ever really like hit the nail on the head um, thematically, but Loki is very upfront about what this show is going to be. Um, and so most of this episode is just Loki and Owen Wilson's character Mobius just sitting in a room talking. Um, and yeah, there's, there's some fun and, you know, flashbacks and uh, just kind of exploring the time variance authority. Um, but most of this, this, most of this show, um, so far is just Loki having to kind of talk about himself and kind of get to the point about himself. Um, and like, uh, the, the, you mentioned that reveal at the end. Um, this show is very obvious about like, you know what, this is Loki against himself, right? This is going to be him trying to figure out who he really is. Um, and there was a, there was a comment I liked, um, that Owen Wilson's character says early on where he's like, um, this story was never about you. Um, just kind of realizing that, yeah, he's been kind of a side character. So we've seen some of the things he's done, but have we ever really like gotten to know this character? Um, and so I, th I think it puts a lot of interesting um, ideas out there that it seems really confident in following up on. Yeah, I agree. I certainly agree, and I'm 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 pretty excited for the next episode. I'm 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 certainly looking forward to it. Uh, love Owen Wilson in the show so far. I really do. I think uh, I think he's going to um, <laughs> I think he's going to be a, a a big a big standard here just across all the three Marvel series so far. Yeah, and I think. You know, Loki has always been a character that everyone feels really drawn to in the MCU. He's always been a fan favorite. Um, so it is nice to see him get um, some new context and get really fleshed out and, you know, kind of get to have fun with it. You know, like that uh, that D.B. Cooper sequence is really fun. Um, and just I'm excited to see more just kind of wackiness like that along the road as well. Yeah, no, me too. I think this is I mean, just the character of Loki overall, I think you have a lot of opportunities to really be weird and just kind of really uh dive into some territory that we don't really uh that we don't really dive into in um in the mcu so yeah I, i'm in agreement there i think it's it's a show that has a really good potential here moving forward how do you feel about that uh that big infinity stone moment <laughs> um i mean puts, puts life into perspective doesn't it yeah i think i think it was really fun uh, I know I saw a bunch of TikToks who were like, this is so insulting to Tony Stark. People died for this. <laughs> um, 
But I thought it was really fun. Um, cause I, I think the challenge the MCU has, you know, post Thanos, um, cause we really haven't met the next big bad yet is, you know, how do you, how do you get bigger than, you know, a guy who just wiped out half the universe? Um, and just like, even if it's just a little throwaway joke, I think it just reminds you that this is a really crazy big, um, universe and there's all sorts of crazy weirdness we haven't met yet. Uh, so I, I really liked that. Yeah, no, I agree. I th- I'm certainly looking forward to see seeing where it goes. Yeah, so that is Loki, the first episode. Um, so I'm excited, and it's it's a little weird coming out on Wednesdays. Um, it was like Friday morning. I got up and I was like, "Cool, new episode," but there was none there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, Wednesday, Wednesdays will be fun. Um, so that was that was again the the first episode. Um, so we'll wrap up with that. And uh, actually keep on the Disney train. Um, so for anybody that follows me on Twitter, I've been keeping up um, watching all the Disney movies uh, before I go to, to Disney World this summer. And so I finally wrapped that up this week. And uh, what a rush. Uh, that's, that's 59 movies. Um, yeah, I'm really glad I did. I've never really done like a studio dive before. Um, do, do a lot of... Uh, like franchises. And of course I've got my, uh, my Sean Connery, uh, watch going on. Um, but it was really interesting to just watch the studio progress. Um, and it puts a lot of just like the animation and the art, the artistry and the the technique behind it into perspective. Um, just kind of watching that adapt over 84 years of Disney. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, you really put some dedication into this 59 films of, uh, 59 Disney animated original movies there. Um, what were like, I doubt you saw them all already, right? A lot of these are probably first watches. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite first watch? That's a question I got for you. Oh, my favorite first watch. Um, probably going to go with the hunchback of Notre Dame. I think Hmm. it was, it's probably the most mature of the Disney movies. Like it's, it's really dark and just very adult oriented. Um, and you know, I, I don't think it's a perfect movie by any means, but I was really just taken in by, uh, just how higher of a maturity level it's at. Yeah. I've never actually seen that one either. So that's one I got to check out. Um, it, it must've been really cool seeing. So when's the, what's the first movie you watched or what year would that, would that have come out? Be uh nineteen thirty seven. Okay, way. so nineteen thirty seven all the way to twenty twenty one's Raya and the, uh, I mean that's just crazy. That it must have been wild to just see the progression of, uh, of this studio and and the different techniques they've, they've kind of adopted and adapted here. What is your favorite era, just in terms of, uh, in terms of the quality of the film? I've got to go with the the golden age. I think there's like there's a lot of beauty in just the traditional animation style um that you can't really get one so even when the the movies are still 2d once computers enter the picture there's just a lot of that like organic uh life um that that hand animating drawings have that the computer just edges out because suddenly you know you can manipulate uh, perfect geometry and, and all that fun stuff um, so I, I gotta go with the golden age. There's something to this Walt Disney guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. what was interesting for me though, was movies that I remember really liking as a kid. Um, there was one in particular that ended up being 
way I had a way lower opinion of um, than I thought I would have, and that was Peter Pan. Um, because that movie is just like it's solid until about the forty-five minute mark, and then it's just like twenty minutes of straight racism. Like <laughs> there's no veiling it or anything. It's so bad. Um, yeah, that must be. It must be. Uh, there's got to be a lot of perspective here from a lot of these these older movies. A lot of uh, a lot of kind of uh, reflecting on some of the dark dark histories. Yeah, and then the uh, the most rewarding thing though was. Uh, Lilo and Stitch, which was my favorite Disney movie as a kid, um, and I hadn't seen it in, I don't know, it's probably been like 10 or 15 years, and it, it wasn't just as good as I remember it, it was even better, and that was just such a like, such yeah. a good feeling like as the credits rolled on that, and I was like, damn this really is amazing <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, I'd say that's um, that's perfect, I think that's that's a good good little feeling there when uh, when something from your childhood gets better. Uh, I I think I'm there's always films I'm scared to rewatch from, from when I'm a kid. I'm like eh, I don't really want this to be ruined for me now that I'm a I'm a little older. I don't I don't want it to be bad now. But that's always a great feeling. Um, and then kind of the biggest like non Disney related takeaway for me, uh, was that like stars or score ratings are pretty meaningless. Um, because you know I I put together a list of my favorites that I'm going to roll out. And when you're talking, when you're trying to compare 59 movies all at once, inevitably you have a ton of movies that have the same score. So it's like, you might put these two movies together by score, but one is, you know, kind of way better or means a lot more than the other. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I no longer believe in, in letterbox. So I'm still trying to figure that out. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, it must've been fun though. Is this, is your best marathon yet? What do you say? Um, Honestly, it's probably pretty high up there just because you're you're jumping really all over the place and you get to see so many different creative teams behind everything. Yeah. Got to be better than the one you're about to start, though. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm ready to kill some brain cells in preparation for F9. <laughs> 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 um, but because I was finishing that up this week, not not F9, the, uh, the Disney watch, um, for the movie Bible Club, I went ahead and picked um, a movie that I had not seen before, uh, which was 2011's Winnie the Pooh. So this was the last um, 2D animated movie distributed by the studio, uh, but this was actually not produced in-house. So this was something that uh, Disney farmed out to one of their secondary animation studios and then and then put out. So like in Europe, um, this movie actually isn't even considered part of the official uh, Disney Animation Studios lineup, which I think is really hmm. interesting. You continue. Um, has, had you seen this one before? No. Uh, yeah, this is one that I've never seen. Um, it kind of came out in an era where I guess I was a little too old for the movie at that point. Old, uh, say with quotation marks, because I don't think you're ever too old for a lot of things. But at that age, you kind of feel like you're too old for things, right? So I missed this then. So yeah, I never really checked it out. Um, it's a pretty brisk and, and short, what, 68-minute runtime here for this film uh, with, like, 15 minutes of credits as well. Uh, but, and the credits are great, by the way. The credits are really good. <laughs> um, I thought it was pretty nice. I, I enjoy the Winnie the Pooh franchise. I think the Christopher Robin uh, film that came out a couple years back starring Ewan McGregor, I like that movie as well. I think that the whole franchise is just pretty pretty sweet um this was a good film it, it's not one i don't I, I personally i don't 
I'm not in love with it. I don't think it's one of the the better animated movies I've I've seen from Disney, but uh, it, it it's just one that is. It's. I think it's simple in a lot of ways, but just kind of really delightful as well. Yeah, I've always been a sucker for Winnie the Pooh, um, but I I really like this movie because it is. It's just this really sweet, like, fun little hour long romp with all of these classic characters. Um, I mean, like, there's a reason why Winnie the Pooh uh, was killed by Disney in the '90s because um, like these characters are so lovable that <laughs> Winnie the Pooh was more popular than Mickey Mouse for a while. Um, and I, I think you just see that just overabundantly in this movie, um, cause it, it feels very much like the original Winnie the Pooh movie. That's just a series of shorts kind of loosely strung together. Um, I think this one is a lot more cohesive than the original Winnie the Pooh movie since this was designed as a movie, but yeah, it's just a fun little adventure. You get to spend, you know, so, you know, probably like 10 minutes each with each of your, your favorite Winnie the Pooh characters. Um, there's a lot to love. Yeah, I felt um, so. This is so. So, how many actual Winnie the Pooh movies have been put out, animator wise? Just the two. So there are, um, I believe, five. five so, okay. so in terms of movies that were actually considered part of the big Disney canon, um, there are only two. But then there are, um, yeah, I was correct, five. So then there are. Uh, the Tigger movie, Piglet's Big Movie, and the Heffalump movie, which all came out in the early 2000s, uh, okay. that are all like loosely a part of this. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I don't think I've seen any. I think, I do not think I've seen any. So, like, this was a, th- this is a franchise that I, I, I don't think I have super close connection with, but I do have, like, little ch- children's books I remember having, or, or stuffed animals. I think I had a Winnie the Pooh. Um uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's always been there, but it was nice to kind of revisit uh, a lot of these characters here. Uh, do a lot of the voice actors, because I know you're you're kind of an aficionado with that. Are they um, the same here as in a lot of the other uh, Winnie the Pooh uh, works? Um, this was kind of weird because uh, so this was the first theatrical movie um, that didn't feature John Fiedler, who is the original voice of Piglet. Um, like he voiced Piglet from 1966 to like 2004 or something like that. Um, just like a crazy long time. Um, so this, it featured Jim Cummings, who's kind of Disney's like go-to replacement guy. Like whenever they make a spinoff series of a Disney movie, Jim Cummings voices the leads that they can't get like, you know, Robin Williams or <laughs> uh, any of the big name actors to come, to come do. Um, so Jim Cummings was in this movie. Um, as Winnie the Pooh and also as Tigger, uh, which he's voiced both of them for quite a while. Um, and then you had uh, Craig Ferguson as Owl, Tom Kenny, who voices SpongeBob, uh, was Rabbit. Um, and you had actually Kristen Anderson Lopez, who's better known for being one of the songwriters for Frozen, um, as Kanga, which I thought was really cool. Um, but I do want to talk specifically about Bud Lucky. Um, so Eeyore is voiced by a guy named Bud Lucky, who is Loki, just one of the like mainstays of animation in general. Um, so he he trained under Walt Disney's uh, former employee slash nemesis, Art Babbitt. Um, he like he was directly an apprentice to him, uh, which is really cool because he's one of the first um, big character animators that started even before Snow White. Um, and then he worked. 
um, with Charles Schultz on a lot of the peanuts marketing. He worked with Don Bluth, um, who is a big Disney guy, um, and who did like a lot of the, the spinoff, but the non-Disney films that everyone thinks are Disney films. Uh, Don Bluth did that, so Bud Lucky was there for those movies. And then he was with Pixar from pretty much the beginning of Pixar almost. So he started working on Toy Story um, in the early 90s and was involved with everything Pixar did pretty much until his retirement um, in 2014 or 2013 or 2014. Um, so he's probably best known. He voiced uh, Rick Dicker in The Incredibles. So he's like mm. the, the cop guy that shoots the plunger. Um, so he, he voiced him. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Cars, he uh, wrote, directed, and... Uh, or sorry, not Cars. I believe it was uh, Finding Nemo or The Incredibles, one of the two. Um, he did the short Bounden, um, where he was the narrator and composed and directed everything for that. Um, so this guy's just been kind of one of the mainstays of animation um, until he passed away a few years ago. And so he was the voice of Eeyore, um, but just an overall, just a really interesting guy to read up on um, because he was involved with everything. Um, he worked with Jim Henson for a while, even um, like <laughs> this man was just involved with anything animation touched really um, from the fifties on up, uh, which is just really, really cool. Yeah. Some of the titans of the uh, of the animation world. Yeah. And I mean, Pooh has just always had just a really interesting cast behind it. So like the original Winnie the Pooh um, was voiced by Sterling Holloway, who was pretty much in every movie that Disney did in the 1950s. Uh, Clint Howard, Ron Howard's little brother, voiced Rue originally, uh, which was really cool. Uh, and then the guy that originally voiced Tigger um, was also the first person in America to patent an artificial heart, uh, which is just kind of a, a random, uh, like, other career to have at the same time as voicing Tigger. Uh, but I, what can I say? Winnie the Pooh just has weirdly talented voice people. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it, it kind of kind of makes me want to go back and watch that original one, even if you did say it's a little incohesive there, just to kind of... Uh, kind of see where this thing, where, where kind of that first film lies in comparison. Listen, the, uh, the original Winnie the Pooh has the two greatest Disney jokes, like the, uh, all 59 movies, the two greatest jokes, uh, both happen within the first five minutes of the midi adventures of Winnie the Pooh. So, uh, it's, it's pretty high up there in my book. There you go. Okay. That, that's what counts. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's my ramblings on Winnie the Pooh. It was a fun time. Um, and of course, like the credits, uh, Zoe Deschanel sings, um, her rendition of the Winnie the Pooh theme song, which is really poppy and really fun. And even the credits are just a lot like the movie. They're just the characters kind of bouncing around the page, bopping to some music. The credits are great. The, uh, especially just the, the whole, the whole visual style of the credits there are phenomenal. Um, I, li I like animated movie credits a lot because they kind of play around with things in ways that you just don't usually see. And while it was a 15 minute credits at the end of this movie, I think I watched like five or six minutes of them until it kind of turns to your traditional black screen, white print. Uh, I mean, it, it was well worth it. Yeah. Listen, here's the thing though. Disney plus skews all the credits too, because there's like the film credits, you know, and then Disney plus always has like three to four minutes of, like all their foreign language credits in behind it. Gotcha. Okay. Um, 
which I mean, I I get why they do it, but yeah, it just like pads the runtime on everything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that is this week at the the box office slash streaming device. Uh, so we had In the Heights, we had first episode of Loki, um, had Winnie the Pooh, of course, um, and we're we're in the summer, and we've got we've got releases coming up. F nine's gonna save the world uh, here in a couple weeks. <laughs> so uh, this has been uh, this week's episode of the Movie Babble podcast. And just remember, you can always check us out online at moviebabble.com. 